back to In the Queue, film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Andrew. And as I said on our Oscar podcast recently, this is one of only a very, very small number of films that I have walked out of and said, my God, the sound design on this film was incredible. It should win an Oscar. (laughs) Those are prophetic words. Yeah. Yeah, we all know what happened later. Uh, this is Phil, your other co-host, and I rewatched this film after not having seen it for 14 years. Wow. And the thing that really kind of stood out to me from the beginning was how interesting it was that nearly every person on the ship in this film is their own character and yeah. and a flesh and blood character at that. Even people who just barely get any screen time seem to have as much significance as those who have a lot more screen time. Yeah, and I'd be willing to bet that a large part of that is due to the source material that this film is based on, where I'm sure the the characters are painted very vividly, but our guest may be able to give us a little bit more information on that front, seeing as how I don't think you or I have read the Master and Commander books. Is that right, Phil? <laughs> Speak for your... No, I, I haven't. I haven't read <laughs> But I believe... Christy, our returning guest, who has not been on the show in quite some time, but has contributed to this show many, many, many times. Christy, say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. And you have read some of the source material, correct? I have. I've read the first four. It's been a while. I need to get back to them. Sure, sure. Because there's something like 17 of them or something, right? There were 20 that were published and he completed, and the 21st was incomplete and published after his death in 2000. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lively discussion about not only the source material, but the film itself. The film we are talking about today is Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, a Peter Weir film from uh, 2003. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, before we get into the conversation about the film, I want to tell you how you can find us online if you haven't already found us. You can go to our website, www. So many (laughs) Too many W's. So many W's. Uh, www.in-the-q that's the letter q.com that's our blog where you can find all of our episodes posted you can leave us comments there you can talk about the podcast itself or you can leave us suggestions like Christy has today come on the show and talk with us about them you can also do that same thing on our Facebook page by searching Facebook for In The Q, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil, and you can like our Facebook page, and then uh, you can not only get all of our episodes, but all of the supplemental material we post, and it is probably the best place for engaging us directly because uh, it's very easy for us to communicate with you and uh, mm-hmm. easy for us to get back in touch with you if, for instance, you suggest a film that you want to come on and talk about, which we encourage you to do. Mm-hmm. Um you can also engage us in conversation on Twitter by searching for at ITQ Podcast. That's our Twitter handle. Or you can go to, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to iTunes or Podcast or uh, Overcast, any of your podcast aggregators out there. And you can subscribe to our show and get every single episode delivered right to you. And it's as easy as that. If you mm. do use any of those aggregators, we ask that you please go out there and give us a, a good review. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, that helps sort of push us up in the rankings and get us in front of more eyes and ears. So uh, so please, if you enjoy the show, leave us a good review. We'd love to hear from you on that front. So, without any further ado, today's film is Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. 
came out of nowhere. Seven weeks sailing, and he happened in darkness on our exact position. Well, then perhaps he was looking for us. My orders were to follow as far as Brazil. I exceeded my orders a long time ago. Mr. Lamb is confident with basic repairs. We can get home as we are. We're not going home. With respect. She's a vastly heavier ship. She's out of our class. Well, then, there's not a moment to lose. My God, that siege. The Acheron is a tough nut to crack. Two minutes and one second, sir! Lads! It's not good enough! More than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers. And they will sell their lives too. When she is taking the water to the South Seas, we are supposed to stop them. We should have turned back weeks ago. She could be halfway to Cape Horn by the time we repaired and underway. You there! This is a ship of war, and I will grind whatever grist the mill requires in order to fulfill my duty, whatever the cost. Have you forgotten your promise? Subject to the requirements of the server. There is, I think, an opportunity here to be making valuable discoveries that could never occur to me. My commander, King Ship, you are not a private yacht. We do not have time for your damned hobby, sir. Can you really claim there's nothing personal in this call to duty? And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. A little bit of an abrupt ending there. You, you always you always make a noise. <laughs> I'm just so excited. Uh, that is the trailer for Mastering Commander of the Far Side of the World. As I said, it is a Peter Weir film from uh, from 2003, the, the great Australian director. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a suggestion from Christy. Uh, I'll give kind of a, a brief plot summary, and then, Christy, I want you to expound upon why it is that you chose this film. I know very well uh, how this suggestion came about, but uh, I certainly want to know why uh, the suggestion uh, was basically, uh, you know, we picked up on it very quickly, is kind of the long and the short of it. Um, but before we get to that, uh, the, the film, you kind of picked up on it in the trailer there, but... The film is about the voyage of the HMS Surprise, led by Captain Lucky Jack Aubrey, who is played by Russell Crowe in this film, who has been tasked uh, by the uh, British Empire to track down and uh, either destroy or capture the Acheron, which is one of Napoleon's uh, premier frigates. Uh, They are off the coast of Brazil at the beginning of the film. And uh, Captain Lucky Jack is very single-minded in his purpose um, to track down the Acheron. And the, the film sort of concerns the, the, that 
that mission, them trying to track down the Akron, which uh, has proven to be a very wily and uh, difficult foe for them to track because it has become aware of their presence and uh, the French are hunting them just as much as they are hunting the French. So it becomes a, very much a kind of a cat and mouse game. And there are a number of uh, characters, as Phil alluded to, um, who are ancillary characters of one form or another, probably foremost among which is the character played by Paul Bettany in the film, which is uh, Dr. Stephen Maturin. And um, he is a good friend of Captain Jack's and uh, a man of science, a naturalist as well as a surgeon. And uh, the voice of reason, you might say. Uh, or the the foil to Captain Jack's ego. Um, and so he kind of exists as, as that kind of force in Captain Jack's life. Uh, sometimes it gets very heated between the two of them. Sometimes it is very amicable between the two of them. But uh, riding Whenever that roller gets... coaster is part of the, <laughs> the, the journey of the film. When it gets a little bit too heated, they just jam it out. A little bit later on, yeah, on the yeah. cello, the cello and violin, and the, and the violin. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. They're they're men, they're cultured men, of the of the world. Um, they're mm. they're consummate Englishmen. Good. Yeah, um, and and the the film is is this hunt, right? It's this back and forth, and the entire film, with a few small exceptions, takes place on the ocean, on the ships themselves, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it's a remarkable film. But before we get into that, uh, Christy, tell us why you recommended this film. Well, you and I were chatting on Facebook on uh, uh, on Oscar night yeah. uh, about uh, the crew for um, Dunkirk winning so many, and you made the con- made the connection that many of them worked on Master and Commander, and, and how that made so much sense because <laughs> <Yeah>. technically fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Two technical and- marvels of films. Uh, let's just say uh, Master and Commander is not a movie a lot of people have seen multiple times. Yeah. I think we are an exception among that. Among that. Um, I think that, yeah. I saw it twice in theaters. Uh, it was my favorite to win that year. It obviously didn't. Yes. And a lot of people not. had no idea why it was nominated for anything outside technical because it was the only best picture that didn't have an acting or a writing nomination. Yes. And it was uh, it was the butt of many jokes that year because of yeah. the title, amongst other things, the Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. People like to make fun of that, even getting the nomination. But I, it was mostly, I, I recall it mostly being people who had not seen the film who were making those jokes. Yeah. Not everyone's going to sit through a two and a half, three hour, uh, you know, historical piece that's all men (laughs) naval (laughs) naval historical drama yes a a very accurate naval historical drama (laughs) um and uh, the books have a lot more of that if uh if you're gonna read them you're gonna read a lot about rigging sure just so you know but uh there's a lot more to them than that obviously there i the books are really wonderful great character building especially on uh matra and paul bettany's character who it they kind of allude to it in this, but it doesn't really come up. He's also a spy. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh. He actually gets a lot more character development than Jack in the books. Wait, is he a spy um, for the French? No, he's a spy for Britain. For he Britain. gets captured okay. by the Spanish in one of the books. I was going to say, because they allude to there possibly being leaks of information yeah. in this film, because otherwise how could the Acheron find them so easily? 
Yeah, um, but, that's yeah. kind of the illusion to people who who read the book picked up on that. But if you if you don't read if you haven't read the books, you wouldn't know. But, sure, sure. Um, yeah, it, it's just so many great characters. It's so well done. As Phil mentioned, it's not easy to make an entire boat full of white men distinguish all themselves. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> uh, that was actually one of my big. Uh, downsides of uh, Dunkirk, all the guys on the beach, they all looked alike. I couldn't tell them who they all were. Sure, sure. Uh, but in this, each person, you may not necessarily know their their name because they don't say the names all the time. Sure. But you know what, you see them and you know who they are and they are their own distinct person. Especially the young, I love the young, the young boy Mr. who Blakely. loses his arm. Yes, Mr. Blakely. Mr. Blakely, yes. Practically steals a show from Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany, which is not an easy feat because Russell Crowe wears this role like a good suit. It just fits him so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. On that point, I think, in my opinion, <laughs> I don't think either of those men, Russell Crowe or Paul Bettany, have ever been better than they are in this film. I think I would agree. With I think really? Both oh, of yeah. their best performances. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean... Not even like I mean I think Paul Bettany is certainly incredible and probably better than I've ever seen him. But Russell Crowe has had a handful of other very high-profile oh, acclaimed yeah. roles. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean he's incredible in Gladiator. He's incredible in A Beautiful Mind. L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential. My f- other favorite role of his. But I think this he's is amazing in Les Mis. No, no, no. <laughs> I do not. No. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, or in what? Oh, what was he the bad guy? It was that first time we ever saw Russell Crowe. Uh, Virtuosity. Virtuosity oh, with Virtuosity. Denzel Washington. Uh, <laughs> man, that movie was terrible. You're, you're forgetting a good year. What about that film? I actually oh. like a good year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, I mean, I I think, yeah, they're both great uh, in this role in this film for certain, and they do have a lot of chemistry, and and they were they're good friends in real life too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that kind of friendship. Uh, is naturally there. Plus they had already done a beautiful mind together a couple yes. of years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, I think you're, you're right, Christy and Phil. I mean, you've both made the point that the characterizations in this film are so incredibly vivid and, uh, and you feel like, you know, all of these characters, even though, even if they have one or two lines in the movie. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I it, think it's, I just wanted to, to speak yeah. to that point that you, that you were just that you were making, and that's like, you've got Russell Crowe who was an Oscar winner by by the time this film came out, big sure. star, and yet when the film begins, it begins on a, a situation involving like a minor character, and yeah. it's almost like when Russell when the big star is revealed when he has his big entrance, it's it's not like a big movie star entrance. He's just kind of like showing up to do his duty as, as leading member of the crew. And we see the crew and we see their routine before we even see the captain. Yeah. And like that, the way that's set up, it, it does just that. It sets it up quite nicely for the fact that this is going to be basically an ensemble drama that takes place on a boat for 90% of the time. And each one of the players has, I think a distinguishing, face and and mm-hmm. you can set them apart from like you know these aren't like the privates on the beach in dunkirk they, they're yeah. varying ages uh you know varying roles and i feel that that it's 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 extremely interesting to sort of see how the big heavy hitting actors are are kind of just a member of this kind of like a network of other people and it's done it's pulled off and edited to, and displayed i think 
really like very smoothly. Yeah, and I would say that that is a triumph of both the writing, which I I mean the source material, as I've been told by many 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 people, is fantastic to begin with, but it's oftentimes hard to adapt source material well into a film. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding the needs of film and how film is different from books uh, is sometimes where screenwriters get lost because they try to either copy the book exactly as is onto film, which usually doesn't work, or they go so far afield by trying to adapt it for film that it it barely resembles the book in the end. Yeah. And, and this is a combo of two books, am I right? It's, it's yeah. mostly pulls from two books, book one and like book 13 or 11 or something like that. But there's actually uh, portions of about three other books in there as well. So it pulls from about five books. In the it's series a lot. It's a lot. Thing. Yeah. And <laughs> the series takes place from like 1800 to about 1815. It covers the Napoleonic Wars and the Wars of 1812. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, uh, far side of the world, they're not against the French. They're against the U.S. Right. And they changed that. Right. Sure. So because they, you know big movie market. Um, <laughs> but so they, they pulled from a lot of uh, uh, little plot lines throughout the series from my mm-hmm. understanding. I've read one of the ones that it's based on the first one, which, so. which in and of itself is a marvel to be able to basically cobble together multiple books and turn it into one cohesive plot that does not feel like it's cobbled together in any way no, whatsoever is a bit of a marvel. And then I think on top of the, the, spectacular writing in this film i think the direction by peter weir who is a great director mm-hmm. is sublime <laughs> i think it is it's just unbelievable the the reason those those characterizations are so instantaneous i mean you you know within in some cases one line everything about a character like like killick for instance yeah. who's the steward the the captain steward he's He's this grumpy, <laughs> surly man who surly takes, man takes care of him. And... Who takes to, takes great care. He does his job as well as anybody could do that job, and he just he's happens to be very concerned about the silver. Yeah, he's very concerned about the silver. Um, one of the first things we see is him trying to salvage it, and then the room getting blown apart with him in it. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, I mean, like within just a line or two, we know what we need to know about the. The characters and there's such an economy of dialogue in this film. There's such an economy of storytelling mm-hmm. in general. So much of it is told visually. There's so much visual storytelling that is doesn't even have any dialogue. I mean, this is this is a movie that is so sharp and it is so tight as a film. Mm-hmm. It just it just I, watching this film again, and I hadn't watched it in several years. I've, I've seen it many times, but I hadn't watched it in several years. Watching this film again, I just felt my heart like bursting out of my chest. I just felt like I was flying watching this film again. I, it, this film honestly makes me so happy. It's hard to describe. <laughs> and it's, it's so amazing also to see it and, and think like, wow, like people actually used to make movies like this, you know, where oh, yeah. they actually – they actually just recreated a ship yeah. and they recreated a battle scene on the ocean. And if I, I assume there are some modicum of CGI or models in this film, but for the most part, it's really just happening. It's largely it's practical. So much, 
he decided yeah. to make it when uh, the model that they used was based on, uh, built in the 1970s, based on a, a ship from that time period, and it went on auction. He bought it. And that's when he decided to make the film, which he had Peter passed Weir over. Peter Weir bought it? Yeah, Peter Weir bought the ship. Yep. <laughs> and wow. yep. that's when he decided to make it, after having passed over the script before. And at the same time they were filming, uh, another ship that's a model of Captain Cook's ship, whose name escapes me, the guy who discovered, the captain who discovered Hawaii and, you know, I think got eaten by cannibals. Yes. I could be wrong yeah. on that. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> um, anyway, it was actually going around the Horn of South America while they were filming this. And so the film crew went down and the, the footage of the storm around the Cape, that's real. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, they they actually filmed it on a on a ship that was built as an exact replica of one from the time period that was in battles against the French and the United States. Yeah, and it's it's it, it's beautiful. It is this the art direction, the cinematography, the shots. Mm-hmm. Um, when Russell Crowe's uh, spinning the 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 wheel and you see his face and yeah. he's, he's determined. Right, there's a few up there's in the a... rigging. There's like oh, two or three like helicopter shots where like you actually see Russell Crowe this you know as this tiny figure like uh standing at the at the sh- at the front at the of the top ship. Of the mass with, with yeah, the uh, mass. James Darcy. Yeah, yeah. it's like oh yeah. my god, like this is this is so money. Like how I mean they they totally got the shot that they were <laughs> trying to get and there's nothing the fake air. about this shot. Like this is actually yeah. him. You can see his facial features and how did they do it? They actually spent money on this and well, it's and it's exciting in this in this era of of CGI where everything like even even our historical epics these days are just chock full of CGI. I mean, I even think of something that's not even that recent at this point. Something like Atonement, where you have the the scene on the beach at Dunkirk in that film, and yeah. it's very moving and it's really impressive, but it's also very clearly CGI. Like it's the whole thing is clearly done on a computer and you you lose that sense of reality i mean even Bastion. even the, the movie dunkirk from this year one of the reasons that i loved it as much as it i did and it ended up as number two on my list was because christopher nolan is slavishly devoted to practical effects and that film was <laughs> entirely real you know yeah. um and yeah. that it, and you feel it you can feel it so watching this movie you can feel the ropes, you can feel the sails, you can feel the wood creaking, the timber. Like it, yeah. it feels more real than almost anything that gets released these days. Sure, and they spent a hundred and fifty million dollars to get it, yeah, that real. And I mean, as we all know, Worth like it was, yeah. I mean, for, for for an artistic perspective, but this was not the box office success that they envisioned. No, it was not, and yeah, of course, probably why they didn't make any more of them. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I don't know if I don't know why they never did. It, it doesn't say that there was a fallout or anything. I was I was uh, mom and I. We were always hoping that he's going to do another one. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, another one that I loved is the music because it's oh, not yeah. it's not just the score. The score is great, but because Russell Crowe learned how to play violin for this, and he does mm-hmm. all the actual violin playing on screen. And the two of them and the way they they play together 
the the cello and 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 the and the violin it's wonderful and they choose some of my favorite classical pieces oh, yeah. i love this i still have my actual cd and i listen to it on a regular basis of the soundtrack yes i do oh, oh yeah it's one of my favorites well the the bach uh the bach piece uh, that they play concerto. Oh. concerto that they play over and over again is i mean it's it's in a million films but i don't yeah. know that it's ever been used better <laughs> it's like it's so it's so good in this film, and it feels so right, and it feels so. It feels a, a, a part of the piece. Yeah, it really does. Um, yeah, I this film to me is a, a masterpiece. I mean, this is honestly one of my favorite films of the last twenty years. Um, I think it's just just a, a spectacular film, top to bottom. Uh, it is, as I alluded to. This is not something that you usually notice, especially if you aren't uh, like a total film geek. But the sound design in this film, I cannot tell you. When I was watching this film, I remember exactly where I was when I watched this film 14, 15 years ago, whatever it was. I I was in the Galleria in St. Louis, Missouri, in the Galleria 6, and I had gone to see it... Uh, I think by by myself, maybe I no, I had a couple of friends with me, I think, but it was a film that I had never felt so much a part of the the action, a, a part of the world of the film. I, I had never felt so immersed in it based largely on the sound design. Um, it's just it's just magnificent. It's mm-hmm. just yeah and and the actually one of the coolest classes i ever took when i was in grad school was a class called sound for film and video and that is where we learned uh about this french film critic and filmmaker named michelle chion who wrote a book called audio vision that we that we read and in that book which i recommend to you especially andrew is you to do christy if you're interested but um they 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 break down and give terminology to things that diehard movie fans have seen and heard for a long time already, but they give it terminology. Like, and there's this thing that's very important in sound design for movies, which is called point of synchronization, which is that moment where your eyes and your ears both sync up and you basically see what you're hearing and vice versa. And throughout this movie, there are these quick cuts to images of pieces of the mass, pieces pieces of the hull, as they're getting blown up by cannon fodder from another ship. Sure. And so we we hear the cannons being fired, the cannonballs being fired, but very importantly, we see it when it makes impact on the ship. So we're hearing it on the soundtrack, but we can actually see it too. And there's that point that really makes it super effective because. That's when both when our senses are basically connected, and there's t- there's tons of footage of of things actually getting blown up, and I don't know how many times they had to do this, <laughs> but like it's like pristine parts of the ship gets blown up and smashed yeah. in these battle scenes, gigantic holes in them, <laughs> and it's like that to me just kind of blows my mind about how how much damage was inflicted. And, and in this age where so many filmmakers want to play it safe and do it digitally, here was a film that really did do the actual things that, that make it so much more exciting to, to witness. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's another thing that I wanted to talk about is the two of the other more minor characters, Blatney, who we've already talked about, the young yeah. boy who loses his arm at the beginning, and mm-hmm. Hollum, the mm-hmm. yeah. troubled young man, other yes. shipman who is most definitely out of his element. Oh, poor and Hollum. I absolutely loved how they portrayed this character who so blatantly did not belong on that ship. Yeah. He he was so out of place, but in that time, he was probably a second son or a son from a, a noble but poor family, needed to go out and earn a living and whatnot. Sure, sure. And that's what you have to do. It's, I don't want to say what, you know, happens, or I don't want to give everything away, but it's such a difficult and wonderful and great relationship and a portrayal of the the type of friendships that you can have on these ships and the, the troubles that come with it and everything. It's, it's, they just did such an amazing job of taking the, the whole world and just putting it on this, this one place yeah. and keeping it all contained and everything within it is just so good. Yeah. And honestly, like you, you talk about those friendships and to me, like one of the most magnificent things about this film is that sense of camaraderie and that sense of friendship that they have on board the ship. And especially between various different characters, there is a moment that I just, I just burst into tears watching this when (laughs) I'm getting well up just talking about it. Um, (laughs) When, when uh, the doctor, Paul Bettany's character has, been promised that he will be able to go uh, ashore at the Galapagos Islands. And of course the Acheron is becomes there. the, yeah, it's there. <laughs> so it becomes the, the more important thing. And, uh, and Captain Jack decides to pursue that and basically tells um, the doctor that he, he is not going to get to go study these animals that nobody has ever seen before. Um, that uh, he'll be he'll be quote unquote the first naturalist ever to set foot on these islands, and um, and the there's this moment when Blakeney comes up to him, oh, I love and that hands him uh, this like tiny little beetle, and he says, you know, I found this beetle on on the ship. Um, it's a Galapagos beetle, and you may have walked the entire island and never seen, seen you know never chanced upon it. Right. And there's just like, there's just this incredible kindness, kindness and a moment between the two of them when you can see that Paul Bettany is, he's, he's still so disappointed that he's not able to go ashore, but he is also simultaneously so appreciative of what Blakeney is doing for him. It's my, like, it's honestly like, it's killing me right now. Like, (laughs) It, yeah. this, and it's, this movie is filled with moments like that, but like that moment in particular, I was just like, I was a wreck. I was an absolute <laughs> wreck. I mean, to speak to those two points that you guys just raised, like, yes, this, this movie, it does paint this portrait of like life at sea, which for like 95% of it is extremely harmonious at, with each other. And they're all, they're all buddies and collaborators and they're all doing their roles and they're they're kind to each other and encouraging to each other. And Jack mm-hmm. is a, is a kind captain, and he encourages uh, some of the weaker members of the crew to to do their best and excel. Especially the young boys. Yes, right. Yeah. But but there's this Holland guy who just does not fit in. Yeah, and he is 
is is he not the very first character we see? He is. Uh, he's. I don't know if he's the first, but he's he's one of. I think he's the first we get a close up of. Yeah. Yeah, and he's yes, the first one to speak scene. or take any action. Yeah. Yes, exactly. His his first scene when he's trying to discern in the distance if there is an enemy in the fog, well, and not he's to, uncertain. To call the yeah. He's uncertain, and he, you know, he's got that uncertainty about him for the the whole the whole film, and it just kind of goes to show. It, it reminds me a little bit of the dynamic with uh, Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where there's a member of the of the group who just does not fit in just that he can't get it right and that to me is extremely poignant and it 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 just it kind of goes to show how you know you don't necessarily see that that unromantic unheroic side in epics like these well you know yeah yeah, and 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 for me uh it, it hewed very closely to another film that absolutely wrecks me emotionally which is also one of my favorite movies uh, which is uh, Edward Zwick's Glory. Oh. Um, and there's a character in that, played by on- Andre Brower, named Thomas, who's this, you know, very upstanding gentleman. You know, he's he's grown up in the same sort of circumstances. Uh, uh, Matthew Broderick's character, and who who's leading the men, and so he considers them to be friends, but he can't be friends, so he has to go among the men who are less learned than he is. He becomes a, very much a fish out of water and is punished for it. Um, and 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 the the sense of camaraderie and the trials and tribulations that they have to go to to be able to trust each other and love each other and all that kind of stuff, it it, it feels very similar to me in a lot of ways. And I love both of these films, uh, and Full Metal Jacket, of course, I love as well. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a, a great deal more cynical than either of these other films, um, absolutely. <laughs> as Kubrick always is. Um, yeah, I mean, if if Kubrick had called that movie Glory, it'd be like the most sarcastic movie title <laughs> in the history of movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, but you mentioned also this uh, not to go back to the the sound design or the sound and visual design or the Sorry. point of synchronization or <laughs> any of those things, but in that first scene, when Hollum is is thinks he spots a ship in the in the fog. And then Captain Jack comes, you know, up, up, you know, on deck and grabs a telescope and looks through it. When he finally is looking into the fog and you, there's this wonderfully designed moment where you see these flashes of light. You see him turn around and he yells, everybody get down. He dives to the deck. Then as he's saying that, you hear the report of the cannons. Yeah which the sound is traveling just a little bit faster than the cannonballs themselves. Then the cannonballs hit. It's this wonderful cascade of events that is like so thrilling. And so also a great way to start the movie. Um, yeah, and it's very smart too. It's, 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 so it's smart. intelligently done and realistic. Oh, it's just, it's just magical. It's just so good. Um, but I have I have a favorite scene in this movie, oh. which I don't want to describe in too much detail to sort of rob those of the pleasure who haven't seen it yet. Uh-huh. But I remember this scene when I saw it in the theater. It's probably one of the best examples of what you would call a reveal that I've ever seen oh. in movies, because it takes place on the Galapagos Islands oh. when uh, when Stephen is is searching for animals to study and. 
<laughs> sure. Uh, this in this little scene here, it's it's very Peter Weir. Mm-hmm. I remember because I had seen I was I I had seen several of his other films, and his films often deal with nature in some way, mm-hmm. and kind of the 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 almost mystical quality of nature, like the rocks and Picnic at Hanging Rock, or you know many of the other indigenous Australian animals in his films from Australia, and the countryside and witness. Yeah, like yeah, kind yeah. Of like and bleak countryside. so so. Paul Bettany is like, he sees a cormorant uh, up at the top of this ridge, and he 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 desperately wants to to get up and 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 study it, uh, but by the time he gets up there and you know the sun's in his eyes and and the bird is gone, um, but he puts his hat down and he believes he's caught something and when he lifts it, there's a beetle on his hand. He <laughs> the, raises the, the beetle, beetle up the beetle that he was given he, by Blakeney. He raises it up and the camera follows his hand and we see his perspective. And then as he's looking at it, beautiful rack focus to oh, the distance. We see so what he, what they've been looking for. And it's such a, that's what I call a very, a very cinematic small moment that turns into a giant moment. Cause like when I saw this on the screen in theaters, I was like, Oh my God. And it still, it still resonates even on my, on my TV too, as being just a very, and it's all done without words. It's all visual. Yeah, and and I will also say that the the acting that Paul Bettany does following that moment when it cuts back to his reaction, yeah, and you know you know everything that he's thinking, and it's all of like his hopes and dreams, but also like his duty. recognition of his duty and <laughs> and his his friendship. And all of those things, like all in that moment, you can see it all in his face. It's like masterful acting. It's so good. Yeah, and I really think this is this is uh, the best I've ever seen Paul Bettany, especially oh, yeah. in this oh, yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Vision ain't got nothing on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, See, this was also the first movie to actually film at the Galapagos. Right? Was yeah. it? Yeah. Oh wow! Which wow. is kind of surprising. That, that it is took surprising. So long. That's very surprising, but also really cool. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like and he that. later goes yeah. back when he plays um, Darwin. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what was that? What was the name of that movie? Um, um, yeah, I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it though. Yeah, me neither. Uh, <laughs> you know that one. Did you know that uh, Paul Bettany is playing Ted Kaczynski in a new TV series? Isn't that weird? That is weird. It's, is it wait? Is that the Unabomber t- TV series that's on like TBS or whatever? Yeah. He, oh wow. Oh, and to, to speak to your question, Christy, he played Charles Darwin in a film called Creation. Thank oh, you. Yeah, I was looking it up. Yeah. Beat me to it. Durr. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Um. Yeah, I. You know this. I mean, if it isn't clear already, I love this film to death. <laughs> Um, I really think that this was criminally overlooked by audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. I think that it is such an incredible, exciting, rousing film. I think it's so well made in every regard. I think even if you are uh, a person who hates Russell Crowe because of his personal life or you don't like his performances or whatever the case may be, I don't see how you could dislike him in this film. I, I think it would be exceedingly difficult to make a case that his performance is not great in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's just a it's just a magical magical film and it's as we were kind of saying something that i feel like we don't see very much of these days sure um and this is only yeah. 15 years ago or 14 years ago you know it's not it's not it's not that far in the past that far in the past but uh I, yeah I, I just not to go off on a tangent but i really feel like sure you know you're you're saving a lot of money when you do things cgi and not literally building them just so that they can be destroyed or damaged but but there i feel like there's a general kind of loss in feeling that happens uh and kind of authenticity yeah. and, and warmth when you do cut corners like that to kind of save money or or do what's popular um, and this is a film that just kind of really just does it all analog style you know yeah. it was shot on film and it would they actually built these uh ships and everything and they actually did blow them up and um it's it's certainly costly but the fact is this film will hopefully live for as long as films are around and it's it's captured for posterity so i think it's totally worth it yeah and i think that you know i mean 15 years ago i don't know what the what 150 million dollars from 15 years ago translates into in today's money it's probably not a ton more no. but when you look at something like the man of steel and it ends up costing 250 million dollars to make that movie that was made entirely in front of green screens and then you look, look look at a movie like this and you're like this costs significantly less and delivered significantly more I, it's hard to Emotional make the argument above, that yeah. that that people are making stuff uh, in 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 the computer because it's cheaper. I don't think at the end of the day, I don't think it it is. Right, yeah. and Christopher Nolan has actually echoed your sentiment. That's that it's it's not cheaper, but it's also there's 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 that, but also I feel like people are getting a little bit too, for lack of a better term, sissified about something like this, you know, because. Like those guys were on the ship. Yeah. They all got uh, extremely uh, uh, water sick. Is <laughs> yeah. that the term? No. Paul Bettany is the only one who didn't get seasick. Apparently, yeah, right? Yeah. He didn't get seasick. But I mean, they weren't just kind of in a studio making this movie. They lived it. You know, they yeah. were they were really ruggedly out there doing it, doing those doing that work. Well, it's it's and, almost like the Revenant uh, from a couple of years back. I mean, a big part yeah, of the reason that the sure. Revenant was such a critical darling and won so many awards, even if a lot of people didn't go to see it and love it was because it, I mean, this is part of the reason that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio won his Academy Award for that was because he was out there in the freezing cold, you know, almost in, dying. Andy's in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so movie. I think people respect that. It just isn't as done as much anymore. And I do have a tiny rant. I absolutely do not think that you should be allowed to get a cinematography award if you're entirely <laughs> shooting in front of green screen. Green screen. And I screamed that at the TV when Life of Pi won. <laughs> Life of Pi oh. was an extraordinary experience, though. Visually, yes, it was. But it's, you know what? It's all done on the computer. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, wait, didn't uh, Avatar well, win there's also? There's some live action scenes, but that's not why it won. Yeah. Didn't Avatar also win cinematography? Wasn't that I don't know, an insane it, thing it, that happened? It's no. not the same as getting those stunning shots of the ship and the close-up. Well, and yeah. it's, 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 It shouldn't even be the same damn category and some, at all. And some of those shots, which were practical shots, uh, I mean, I mean, it was very clearly meant to echo like a Turner painting. 
right? Yeah. Of those like sea battles, like when when you see the two ships opposite each other after they've laid into each other with a smoke in the air, yeah, smoke in the air, and you watch the main mast fall. You know, like that's like oh, it's you can hear the yeah, crack yeah, yeah, and. I think nobody nobody can can undermine the fact that this is great cinematography in Master and Commander, but I think like to speak to your your tiny rant, Christy, <laughs> is that when you're dealing with like so much CGI, for me personally, there is a blurriness that develops between yes. who gets the credit, the cinematographer or the art visual director, or the art uh, or visual yeah. effects, production design. Like it's like really who, it it all becomes kind of nebulous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 certain certain My films, you know, yeah. I respect your pet peeve. And, and if you're if you're making a film entirely with natural light like this film, oh, that's a total art. That's a vanishing art. I, I doubly respect that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a marvel. It is a wonder to behold. Mm. Um, I really can't say enough good about it. Uh. I I really think it's one of the best films in the last twenty years, or the best films of ever. <laughs> I mean, it's it is it it's is basically one of my favorite better films. than Citizen Kane, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I enjoy watching it more than Citizen Kane. It's certainly more entertaining than Citizen Kane. <laughs> I appreciate I, Citizen Kane. It's more colorful than Citizen Kane. Sure, well, yes, that's sure. It. <laughs> it's also just more. It's just more fun. Um, it's more live. It's, it's rousing. Uh, yeah, uh, I love it. I, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, if you're, you're one of the people who missed it first go around and it's never really risen to the top of your list, I recommend that you put it at the top ASAP. Yes. It's really great. Phil, uh, what, what are your thoughts on final thoughts on Mastering Commander? Final thoughts. Um, I, I, once again, last time I saw it was in 2003 and I remembered how big it was <laughs> in the theater. It was such a grand experience. And if you can see it on a giant TV or project it on the side of your house or something, take, go the extra mile and do it. Because yeah. this is a film made in the grand tradition of big screen epics. And it really is best appreciated in the theater or on a giant screen with, with your you know surround sound setup if you've got it. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of a lot of care and attention went into making it an immersive, grand experience, and it should be seen that way as much as possible. Agreed, agreed. Christy, final word on Master and Commander. Uh, I don't think you're gonna find a better performance from anyone that's in this film. Mm. Um, it's, I think it's the top game of everyone that was involved in it it is beautiful and just stirring and and at times heartbreaking and it's mm. it's worth the time and to just sit yeah. and enjoy yeah so it really is it really is uh thank you christy for bringing this to in the queue uh, thanks my for pleasure. hopping on my uh, my Facebook post and and uh, uh, shouting out about it because I was like yes yes please let's do this right away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably the fastest we've ever gone from suggestion to actually being on I the think show. This is probably a record. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a record. Definitely for me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but it was a joy to watch it again. Uh, it was a joy to speak with you about it. Uh, to have you back on the show. Hopefully we'll get to another, I, you, I know you have a backlog of suggestions. 
So whenever you got time. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have you back on soon. Um, that uh, concludes our show on Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World. Uh, we hope that you will join us for our next episode when we will be talking about the new release, A Wrinkle in Time, also based on literary source material, uh, cherished literary source material. Uh, I'm very curious to see it, directed by Ava DuVernay, whose last effort went over very well on In the Queue, um, 13th. Mm-hmm. And around the world. Film? And around the world. I mean, it's shown in classrooms everywhere nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, become almost an instant documentary classic um so i'll be very interested to see that film and uh, we'll be talking about it in the next episode we will see you then